Acts chapter 8, verse 23 through Acts chapter 19, verse 7 is our study this morning. Acts 18, 23 through Acts 19, 7 is our study this morning. And would you join me in prayer? Lord God, we just bow before you with grateful hearts, with thanksgiving for the salvation that you have provided for us fully and freely through simply putting our faith in Jesus Christ. And it's our fervent hope, Lord, and our deepest desire that each person here in this service or the first service this morning has had a time in their lives when they have trusted Jesus as their Savior. Not themselves, not religion, not religious works or rituals, but Jesus and him alone. Thank you for the new life you give us when we make that decision. Thank you that we pass from death to life. Thank you that you give us eternal life and make us a part of your family. Lord, thank you. Guide us in this study, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when you sit down to study a passage such as we have this morning, and one of the greatest scholars... Uh, on the New Testament says, I wish this were not part of the Scripture. It's too hard to understand. You know you're in trouble. You know you're in trouble. Uh, his exact quote is Sir William Ramsey, one of the great, he's a great Scottish scholar and uh, one of the great New Testament scholars. He said this about our passage this morning. This episode I must confess not to understand. So that's the task ahead of us, is to get some understanding out of Acts 18, 23 through 19, 7. He went on to say, if there were any authority in the manuscripts or ancient versions to omit this episode, one would be inclined to take that course. So in other words, this is a difficult section of Scripture, but it's an important section of Scripture uh, in it, we encounter uh, Apollos, and we also encounter 12 disciples of John, and they have a similar problem, and that is that they understood the baptism of John the Baptist, but their understanding hasn't gotten past that. And so they have an inadequate understanding of baptism, uh, Christian, specifically Christian baptism. They have an inadequate understanding of the baptism of the Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so they have an inadequate understanding and they need to be brought forward. And I think that's why Luke joins both Apollos, the section on Apollos which closes out chapter 18, and he joins it to chapter 19, these 12 disciples of John the Baptist. Now, uh, another writer put it this way, a glimpse into other streams of Christian witness which flowed parallel and apart from Paul is what we have in this passage. We are, we are seeing here, and I think it's helpful to us to understand that at this early stage of the early church, several years in, uh, the early church, there were still people who were followers, for instance, of John the Baptist, who did not understand or had not gotten past this baptism of repentance that John the Baptist called for, looking toward the coming of Messiah, did not fully understand that the Messiah had come, did not fully understand that, he, that Jesus was the Messiah, that he uh, died for their sins, that he was buried, 
and that he was risen again from the dead. They didn't have a full understanding of that. And so that's what we're encountering here. And often we think of the, the early church and the teaching of the early church as monolithic, and that is it just had one, one uh, rhythm, one thing. But here we have the sense that there are those that were still teaching the baptism of John. There are those who were still teaching the baptism of John, and they're represented here, and I think Luke joins them here uh, with Apollos by Apollos at the close of chapter 18 and by 12 disciples of John in chapter 19. Now, what does this mean? It means that the book of Acts is transitional. The book of Acts is transitional. Things happen in the book of Acts in an inconsistent way particularly the baptism of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, laying on of hands, all of those things happen in an inconsistent way in the book of Acts. And you never build doctrine on a transitional book. The book of Acts is transitioning, is transitioning in several ways. It's transitioning from the synagogue to the church. It's transitioning from... The law to grace, it's transitioning from Old Testament saints to New Testament saints. It's tra uh, transitioning from the body of Jewish believers to the, the body, the church, which is made up of Jew and Gentile together on an equal basis. So the thing I would like you to understand is you can't and you should not build doctrine on a transitional book. This is an important statement to understand also the only teachings, teachings in Acts that are absolute for the church are those that are confirmed elsewhere in Scripture. The only teachings in Acts that are absolute for the church are those that are confirmed elsewhere in Scripture. So we need to understand that. Also, we need to see that there were other teachers and other groups out there at this time with an incomplete or inadequate understanding of the work of Christ and of the work of the Holy Spirit. That's why this section is important. It's important in several ways. Number one, as Warren Wiersbe said, Paul could not build a church on men with an inadequate spiritual experience, nor can we today. And so therefore we have Luke including this section about Apollos, about Paul confronting the disciples of John, trying to teach them the truth and trying to build them in them a foundational understanding. Now, it's also important because the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is important. And we're going to get a little bit of that today as we, as we uh, look through the eyes of Apollos and look through the eyes of these 12 disciples, we're going to get a little bit of that today. First of all, remember the Holy Spirit is called the comforter, the protector, the guide. Uh, the Holy Spirit energizes our service, energizes our walk with God. So it's important to understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Leroy Imes in the the, his uh, daily discipleship, which I absolutely love. Uh, I've used it for the first time this year, and 
I don't know how many of you are familiar with Leroy Imes or are familiar with his uh, daily devotionals, uh, uh, daily devotional book called Daily Discipleship, but it is spectacular. I urge you to run out and get it. Not in the next few minutes, however. Um, he, he says this, ex, uh, trying to illustrate for us the Holy Spirit as the comforter, the protector. He said, after graduation from high school in 1943, I joined the Marines. I was hoping they could toughen me up and help me learn how to hold my own. I always had a secret desire to be a rough and tumble guy. In fact, I even had a nickname picked out for myself, Nails. I always wanted to be known as Nails Imes, as in, there's a guy that's tough as nails. But my nickname in the Marines was Chick. To hold my own in the tough outfit I was in, I made friends with the biggest, strongest, roughest guy in the battalion. Nobody picked on me because they knew they would have to answer to my unofficial bodyguard, the one who was always ready to come alongside and help. And nobody wanted to tangle with him. And he says that is exactly what, has God, what God has provided for the protection and ministry of his children. The Apostle John referred to the Holy Spirit as the comforter or helper. The word translated comforter, comforter and helper from the Greek is the word paraclete, which means one who comes alongside to help. Uh, I had a little lesser experience in high school. I was actually in ninth grade. And uh, uh, in the way things were set up in the school I went to in those days, the, uh, uh, some ninth graders had a lot of their classes at the high school. And so there I was, little mealy ninth grader, having to go into the lion's den with the 10th, 11th, and 12th graders. You know what I'm talking about? Well, one day, I'm going in the door, walking down the hall, and suddenly there are these giants, at least they, in that day they looked to me like giants, of upperclassmen who circled me. I thought, I am in trouble. I don't know how this is going to end. And then... Out of the blue from behind me, I heard my neighbor, Anthony Tuminello, who was our neighbor, who was an upperclassman at school, and he was a wrestler, and I mean he was built. And he saw my distress, and he became the one who came alongside me. He walked up to me, put his arm around and said, there's my friend Joe, and he walked me through the circle. Not one person challenged him. Not one person challenged him. The Holy Spirit is our comforter, our protector. He guides our service. He energizes our service. The Holy Spirit also, it's important for us to understand, his job is not to magnify himself or to elevate himself, the Holy Spirit is to magnify or elevate what person? Who knows? Jesus Christ. His job is to magnify Jesus Christ. Well, Imes provides us with another great illustration of that. He talks about a time when he and his wife went to the opera in Vienna, Austria, and uh, he said, to be honest, I wasn't enjoying the opera very much. 
And uh, he said it was sung in German, which I didn't understand. The plot was hard to follow. And uh, their seats were in the third balcony. In other words, they could touch the roof from where they were seated. And uh, he said he suddenly noticed a noise or movement behind him. He glanced over his shoulder and he saw the spotlight operator whose job was to follow the lead character with this huge 1,000-watt light. He never let the spotlight stray from the central figure who moved back and forth on the stage or among the rest of the characters on stage. He said, that reminded me of this great spiritual truth about the Holy Spirit. Just like that spotlight operator would never have varied or gotten down on the stage to take the spotlight himself or varied the spotlight, so the Holy Spirit puts a spotlight on Jesus Christ, not himself. If you encounter teaching where the Holy Spirit is the one who is held up in the spotlight, you're getting bad teaching. The Holy Spirit highlights or spotlights Jesus Christ. Well, so uh, this is important for us in several levels. It's important for us because uh, you need good doctrine to have uh, a good church. Uh, you need to understand the importance of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And that's one of the issues here in Acts chapter, the latter part of chapter 18 and chapter first part of chapter 19. That's part of what's going on here. So you have to have a good understanding. Also, permit me just, just one more little part of the introduction. Uh, it's also important to understand the truth of the Scripture and to understand what the Scripture truly teaches and not to be caught up in some doctrine built on a transitional book. It's also important because it's important to the lives of men and women in Jesus Christ. Uh, in our church in Hot Springs, Arkansas, many, many years ago now, because we've been here almost 30 years, I guess, in Del Rio. But, um, so it's been a long time ago. I'll never forget uh, two young women came into our church one Sunday, visitors, and uh, after getting to know them, and Kathy got very close to them, after getting to know them, they had been nearly destroyed by a legalistic, charismatic group that just ground them into the ground. And they were so discouraged and they were so hurt and so wounded that they were ready to give up on Christianity. They were ready to quit. And they saw something in the newspaper that talked about our church, and they said, we will give it one more try. And if it doesn't work out today, we're abandoning Christianity. And they just happened to come, and I'll never forget this, they just happened to come on the day that we were introducing a study in the book of Galatians, the book of the great book of Christian freedom. And they found new hope as we talked about the freedom that we have in Christ. And they found new hope for their lives. And they stayed with us several years till they moved out of the area and they grew. This is important, folks. Doctrine is important. Doctrine is important. It's important personally on a personal level. It's important on a leadership level. It's important to understand who the Holy Spirit is. And what he does. So that's, that's where we are this morning. Uh, look with me at verse 23 of chapter 18. 
After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, what is happening here is this is the start of the third missionary journey. You and I have together studied the first two missionary journeys. Over the past year, we've studied the first two uh, missionary journeys and the, the material preceding, preceding that in the book of Acts. Well, here in chapter uh, 18 and verse 23, we have the start of the third missionary journey. This will be the third and last missionary journey. Paul will take one more journey to Rome at the end of the book of Acts, but he will be in chains in that journey to Rome. It's not a missionary journey. Although, you know, you can look at Paul and know anywhere he is, he's a missionary, right? Anywhere he is, he's ready to share the gospel. But this is the start of his third missionary journey. And what we find out is he, uh, remember, after a missionary journey ended, he would go back to his home church. He would go back to the sending church, which in this case was the church in Antioch of Syria. And that was the sending church. So Paul, after his second missionary journey, went to back to Syria, Antioch in Syria, from about the summer of 52 A.D. to the spring of 53 A.D. He spent time there teaching, recovering, sharing what had happened on the second missionary journey. And in chapter 18, verse 23, it's time to go back and visit the churches. And from the description here, uh, he went back to visit the churches that were established on the first missionary journey. Why? Why? Because Paul was always concerned about believers growing. He was always concerned about the growth of believers. He was always concerned that they stay on the right path. He was always concerned that they go in the right direction and don't turn back. Because you and I know how easy it is to take a detour in our spiritual life, don't we? We know how easy it is to get trapped by sin. We know how easy it is to get trapped by self. We know how easy it is to, to respond to the lure of the world. We know how easy it is to let Satan sift us. Because all he wants to do is destroy us and devour us. And so Paul was always concerned about the churches, always concerned about teaching them, helping them to grow, strengthening them. And so we see that here. He strengthened. He was strengthening all the disciples. Uh, the word strengthen there means to confirm or to steadfastly set. He, what he wanted to do is make sure these believers were still set on the rock. Make sure these believers were still set on the Word of God. Make sure these believers were still going in a right direction, in a positive direction, in a good direction in their spiritual lives. That they hadn't taken a sin detour in their lives. To strengthen means to turn resolutely in a certain direction. To turn resolutely in a certain direction. You see, when you and I came to faith in Jesus Christ, our lives turned around. Amen? Our lives turned around. Uh, I don't know about how your life was or how you, what your salvation story is, but in my salvation story, uh, I was walking away from God because I didn't fully understand or put my trust in Jesus Christ. 
and I was going in the opposite direction. Because all of us who are not living for God, we're living for whom? Self. And through a series of circumstances and over several years, God brought me to Himself, to the place where I knelt down before Him and put my faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. And He gave me eternal life. And I got up from that place and I began to walk in the other direction. Toward God, not away from God. Well, Paul wants them to turn resolutely in a certain direction. He wants to be sure they're still going in the right direction. Wants to make sure they're still growing as they should grow. Well, verse 24, mean, meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He had been instruct, instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. In other words, he was ignorant of Christian baptism and what Christian baptism meant. And he was probably ignorant of the ministry of the Holy Spirit called the baptism of the Spirit. And he was no doubt uh, uh, not understanding about those because that's similarly what the issue was in chapter 19 with these 12 disciples of John the Baptist. Now, there were two kinds of followers of John the Baptist. And each kind is represented here by Luke, by the first kind of followers represented by Apollos. Luke uses him to represent that kind of follower. And then the second kind is represented by the 12 in chapter 19. Uh, the represented, those represented by Apollos uh, appreciated, as one writer said, appreciated John the Baptist but they looked forward to the greater fulfillment of which he spoke. They looked forward to the coming of Messiah. In other words, uh, Apollos was ignorant, probably, the, uh, many scholars believe he was ignorant of the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. He only knew that John taught a Messiah was coming, and that's as far as his understanding went. So, he, he uh, instructed in the way of the Lord. He spoke with fervor. He taught about Jesus accurately. That is as far as he knew. But he only knew the baptism of John. He only knew the baptism of John. So that kind of follower of John the Baptist is represented by Apollos. They appreciated John, but they looked forward to the greater fulfillment of which he sp spoke. They looked forward to the coming of Messiah. Apollos only went that far. The second group is, un, is uh, represented by the twelve in chapter 19. Uh, they are devoted to John the Baptist himself. They looked no further. They honored him as an equal with Jesus, and some of them even elevated him higher than Jesus. That is the other kind of follower of John the Baptist. That's what we're seeing here in our passage this morning as we look at this. Uh, elements of Apollos' ministry that we see here. He was a learned person. He had a thorough knowledge of the Scripture. 
He was enthusiastic. He was passionate about God and His Word. He was bold. He boldly presented God's truth. But the next thing we see is that he was humble. He taught, but he also was teachable. We read in verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. On arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. He was humble, and, and we see that humility in the fact that he allows two tent makers, despite his eloquence, despite his education, despite his knowledge, he was willing to be corrected. He was willing to be corrected. And we see his humility in the way he was willing to be corrected. Well, one writer said, Apollos was a scholar, orator, and debater. And after his knowledge about Christ was made more complete, God greatly used these gifts to strengthen and encourage the church. Reason is a powerful tool in the right hands and the right situation. Apollos used it to convince many in Greece of the truth of the gospel. You don't have to turn off your mind when you turn to Christ. Can I say that again? You don't have to turn off your mind when you turn to Christ. In fact, your mind is... I don't know what the right word I want enlightened in such a new way when you turn to Jesus Christ. Reason is a powerful tool. You don't have to turn off your mind when you turn to Christ. And then the writer says this, if you have an ability in logic or debate, use it to bring others to Christ. If you have ability in logic or debate, use it to bring others to Christ. Now, I don't want a show of hands. I'm not asking you to raise your hand. But you know who you are. If you have an ability in reasoning, if you have an ability in logic, if you have an ability in debate, then learn as much as you can of the Word of God and get out there. Get out there and mix it up because the world needs you. The world needs you. I thank God for people I've never known who enriched my life along the way and strengthened my faith. People like Josh McDowell, evidence that demands a verdict. How many of you have been affected by Josh McDowell's writings? Just, just a couple, just a couple. I urge you to look at his writings, especially the new evidence that demands a verdict. He had a gift in reasoning, a gift in debate, and he used it in a mighty way. Paul Little, C.S. Lewis, Norman Geisler, Alex McFarlane, Lee Strobel, all of those people have had an effect in my life and perhaps in your life. And why? Because they had a gift of reason. They had a gift of logic, a gift of debate, and they gave it to God. 
Now, your gift may be different, and that's great, but if you have a gift of reason, a gift of logic, a gift of, deb of debate, then don't keep it to yourself. Use it to share with others about Jesus Christ. Well, there's so much we could say about Apollos, I'm going to have to just cut out some of it so we can get through the rest of this for this morning. And I know that by now you're thinking about hamburgers and hot dogs <laughs> and a lake that has no water. Uh, no, I'm... <laughs> uh, let's move on. Uh, Apollos was effective, by the way. He was so effective that, that he did a great job when he went to Corinth. He went to Corinth and he was a great teacher there. But what uh, happened is the Corinthians weren't great believers. <laughs> the Corinthians were carnal believers. That is, they were, uh, lived their lives more like unbelievers. They lived their lives in sin more than they, they did uh, follow the teaching of Apollos. And yet he was still a mighty teacher and did a great job there at Corinth for those who would listen and those who would follow. You know what? I'm not going to skip this. I want you to hear this. The book of the Acts. Sorry, I'm just, I'm calling an audible. What can I tell you? Uh, the book of the Acts contains few more striking lessons for the preachers of today. It's talking about Apollos. Many good, gifted, eloquent, earnest men know or declare only the baptism of John. They call men to repent of their sins. They insist on social justice and public integrity. And they emphasize the teachings and the, the example of Jesus. But they are silent as to the absolute necessity of a new birth by the power of the Holy Spirit. They're, they want to talk about social work. They want to talk about social justice. They want to talk about public integrity but they don't want to talk about the new birth experience that changes a person's life and sets them on a new course in their lives. The writer goes on to say, ethics and social reform are absolutely essential parts of the gospel message, but they must not supplant and can only follow the proclamation of a living and divine Christ through faith in whom alone men receive in all fullness the gift of his spirit. Another writer said, the business of ministers is to preach Christ. What, what I'm trying to say is so many churches today are, are um, uh, like a religious version of the Lions Club. Now, I, please, if you're part of the Lions Club, I'm not, I'm not trying to put down the Lions Club or Rotary or any of those service organizations. They do a great Thing in the area they do, in the area they work. But we weren't meant to be a religious version of the Lions Club. We in the church weren't meant to be a religious version of a social club or a service club. We have something that we can do that no one else can do and that is share the life-giving message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are not just connected to the social gospel. 
unless we're connected first to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And Apollos is an example of that. And Matthew Henry, who said the business of ministers is to preach Christ. Well, chapter 19, when Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, right there, Paul is showing what he believes is the normal experience for a believer. The moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the moment you believe, you, the Holy Spirit comes to live in your life. He baptizes you into the body of Christ. That is, he makes you a member of the church. According to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it happens to every believer. At the moment of salvation, they are placed into the body of of Christ. That Paul here is assuming is the normal, uh, the normal way it is done. They answered, no, we have not even heard. He, he said, there, there he found some disciples. Asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Now, there's a debate about whether these 12 were believers before or after encountering Paul. Many believe that they were already believers, and Paul just brought them further along in their understanding of the gospel. Uh, others believe that what we're reading here is the, the time that they came to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, one writer said it's beside the point to debate whether or not these disciples were Christians before Paul met them. They were disciples of Jesus, but with an incomplete knowledge of the gospel. Well, that brings us to a, a major issue here in the, in the book of Acts. And, and the reason I think that Luke has included what he has included here in chapters 18 and 19, uh, because what we have in the book of Acts, there is no consistency in the book of Acts when it comes to the baptism of the Spirit. There's no consistency in the book of Acts when it comes to tongues as a result of or evidence of the baptism of the Spirit. There's no consistency in the book of Acts when it comes to whether people lay hands on those who are trusting Christ or don't lay hands on those who are trusting Christ. There is no consistency, and it's important not to build a doctrine on the book of Acts and yet many have, particularly our charismatic brothers and sisters in Christ, built a doctrine on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or a doctrine of the Holy Spirit, based on the book of Acts. Again, the key thought is, the book of Acts is a transitional book. You don't build doctrine on a transitional book. Uh, why do I say that? Well, if, if you look, and I'm going to do just a really ridiculously fast survey of the baptism of the Spirit in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, 
The baptism of the Holy Spirit is subsequent to salvation. That is, those who are gathered in Acts 2 are already believers. They are, are already believers and they are later baptized by the Spirit and in Acts 2 it's evidenced by speaking in tongues. Okay? Now, if there were consistency in the book of Acts, we'd see that pattern repeated, but we don't. In Acts chapter 8, the next time we see the baptism of the Spirit, again, it's subsequent to salvation. Uh, this time it's at the laying on of hands of the leadership of the Jerusalem church. However, there's no mention of speaking in tongues. All right, So already we have a disparity between what happens in Acts 2 and what happens in Acts 8. Then Acts 10 is the next time, Cornelius and the Gentiles. And there, the baptism of the Spirit is not subsequent to salvation, it's simultaneous with salvation. Whoa! Our heads are spinning by this time. You mean to tell me it's not consistent? That's what I'm trying to say. Are you with me? It's not consistent in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 10, baptism of the Spirit is simultaneous with salvation. It is evidenced by tongues. There is no laying on of hands. There's a reason for that. Jewish hands were not used to lay upon Gentiles to receive the Spirit as they come to faith in Jesus Christ to show that God accepts Gentiles on an equal basis with Jews. And Jews and Gentiles together make up the church. But do you see the point? There's no consistency. And then finally, we have Acts 19, the passage in front of us this morning. And again, we don't even know if these 12 disciples were believers or not yet. If they are believers when we encounter them, then the baptism of the Spirit is subsequent to salvation. If they are not believers, and this is their testimony that we're reading in Acts 19, then there's their baptism of the Spirit is simultaneous. We don't even know that. If it, uh, the baptism of the Spirit is, however, evidenced by tongues in this case, and it happens at the laying on of hands. But what has happened is, even though there's no consistency, our friends in certain movements teach a doctrine of subsequence, that is, baptism of the Spirit is always subsequent to salvation. They teach a doctrine that the normal evidence is speaking in tongues and that the baptism of the Spirit must be sought. It doesn't just happen automatically. Now, what I've just shared with you is I've showed you from the book of Acts how you can't make that, you can't make that statement. You can't say those three things. If you were building, or if I was building a doctrine of the Holy Spirit, of the baptism of the Spirit, based upon the book of Acts, it would sound like this. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is subsequent to salvation unless it's simultaneous with salvation. Do you get my drift here? Secondly, the baptism of the Holy Spirit would be accompanied by tongues, or maybe not. Number three, the baptism of the Holy Spirit would happen, on the laying of, happen at the laying on of hands, or maybe not. What I'm trying to show is that the book of Acts is a transitional book. 
It is a transitional book. And that's what we see here. And that's why you can't build a doctrine of subsequence evidence by speaking in tongues. Baptism that must be sought. Let me kind of pull things together and try to close out this morning and get us all to the lake at a decent time. Number one, I want to answer a couple of questions here. Number one, is the baptism of the Spirit subsequent to salvation? The answer is no. It's in, according to the New Testament epistle of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13, the baptism of the Spirit is simultaneous with salvation. Paul said, For by one Spirit were we all baptized into one body. In other words, Paul looks at the Corinthians and says, every one of you is baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. How could he possibly know that? Did he interview every person in the church at Corinth? No. He knew that because the baptism of the Holy Spirit happens at the moment you put your faith in Christ. Four things happen. You're regenerated, you're indwelt, you're baptized by the Spirit, and you are sealed by the Spirit. It's ribs. You can remember it by remembering ribs. Those four things happen to you the moment you come to faith in Jesus Christ. And now I mention ribs and you probably want food. Okay. So is the baptism of the Spirit subsequent to salvation? No. According to Paul, it is simultaneous with salvation. The second question, is the baptism of the Spirit related to some kind of sanctification experience. And uh, again, that's what some people teach. But again, the answer is no, it's not related to a sanctification experience. Uh, all the Corinthians are baptized. That's what Paul said. By one Spirit were we all baptized. 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, And yet, we find that the Corinthians are anything but holy. They are, they are the one of the most uh, sin-riddled churches in the New Testament. So no, it's not, baptism of the Spirit is not related to sanctification experience. Number three, is speaking in tongues the evidence of the baptism of the Spirit? Here, Paul deals with this in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 29 and 30. In this section... He is, he is uh, saying, starting in verse 27, Now you are the body of Christ. Each one of you is a part of it. And in the church, God has appointed first of all apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, also those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with gifts of administration, and those speaking in different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles... Now, Greek is really cool. Greek is such a specific technical language unlike English, that in Greek, they have a way of asking a question that assumes the answer. So when, they, when Paul says, are all apostles, the assumed answer is no. Not everybody's apostle. Uh, do all, uh, are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all have gifts of healing? No. Do all speak in tongues? No. No. So if tongues, speaking in tongues is the evidence of the baptism of the Spirit and every believer at Corinth is baptized, why don't they all speak in tongues? 
the fourth question, are Christians to seek the baptism? And the answer to that is, uh, according to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it's not something you seek, it's something that happens at the moment of salvation, and there's no evidence anywhere in the Bible of seeking the baptism of the Spirit. And lastly, do we need a subsequent experience for power? That is, some, some teach that we need the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, to empower us so we can be dunamis, powerful. Peter said in 2 Peter 1.3, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. You have it all, folks. You don't have to seek anything. You don't have to seek another experience. You don't have to seek the baptism of the Spirit. You don't have to seek any of those things. You have it all. Everything you need for life and godliness. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. We just pray right now, Lord, for our time at the lake. We pray for safety for everyone and a good time. We pray, Father, and thank you for the truths of your word. We thank you that your spirit indwells us. The moment we come to faith in Christ, regenerates us, baptizes us, and seals us so that we can never be taken out of your hand. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.